I'm Richard Hollingham, and this week in the Planet Earth podcast, I visit a high-tech lab helping to predict Europe's future climate. The laboratory generally is pretty idiot-proof. It's designed to be robust. Um, Sorry, I'm not calling you an idiot. I'll also be talking to one of the UK's top climate scientists about communicating global warming and why size is important for bees. I'm at the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology on the banks of the Thames at Wallingford in Oxfordshire, and without wishing to tempt fate, I think it's reasonable to assume that spring has finally arrived. You can hear the birds chirping in the trees, the flowers are budding, I've even seen a butterfly. But look around the English countryside and you'll find animals or plants that shouldn't be here, from monkjack deer to mitten crabs, harlequin ladybirds to tree of heaven beautiful names with a damaging impact. Invasive species are reckoned to be one of the world's greatest threats to wildlife. And when you factor in a changing climate, the situation could only get worse. Well, with me is David Roy. David, they're called invasive species, alien species, non-native species. I mean, what, what sorts of things are we talking about? There is a lot of terminology around this subject. So let's start off with alien species, which are things which are brought to an area through man and then within the alien species we then distinguish those which are problematic whereby they cause impact to the ecology the environment or economic impact and we term those invasive species and they're the ones that we're particularly concerned about. So give us some examples of of particularly problematic species. So some good examples are deer species for example including the monkjack deer which is one we're particularly focusing on currently is a problem in that it's spread quite widely from being introduced around Woburn in the Woburn area and it feeds on the ground floor within woodlands particularly likes to eat the flower heads off spring growing flowers so it has quite an impact on the ground floor of our native woodlands. Now you're looking particularly at climate change and invasive species what is what's the link there? Well, it's been hypothesised that a number of invasive species or, or even alien species which aren't currently invasive will become more problematic through climate warming because most alien species into Great Britain, for example, come from warmer climates either in the northern hemisphere or even from the southern hemisphere. And some of them are persisting, but some of them don't. So we're feeling that more species will become established. These are species which are probably already arriving through the impact of man. They're being transported to written through trade or contamination of plant material but aren't currently causing a problem because they can't establish but if the climate becomes more suitable to them then they may well begin to spread and equally there are species that we know are currently restricted to buildings or glass houses because they're typically warmer those sort of species may well be able to survive in the wild and you want people's help to monitor i think six species We've launched a um, project to to monitor six species which are known to have an impact on the environment and the public can identify relatively easily and potentially are likely to see to raise awareness of the problem but also to track the spread of these species which we know are causing a problem in the the environment. The project's called RISK and we've had some success in this approach in terms of tracking the spread of the harlequin ladybird, for example. And the, the general public being everywhere and the eyes and ears of detecting wildlife are incredibly valuable in telling us where these species are turning up. And one of them is the monkjack? The monkjack deer is on the list and I expect many people will be seeing it in parks, uh, woodlands and even in their back gardens. And there's a link to that project on the Planet Earth online website. Thank you, David. This is the Planet Earth podcast from the Natural Environment Research Council. Only a few months ago, it seemed that most people had accepted that not only was climate change real, it was our fault. 
But after leaked emails, IPCC errors and a cold winter, a recent opinion poll suggests that many have lost their trust in climate science. So where did it all go wrong? Richard Betts is one of the UK's leading climate scientists and heads climate impact research at the Met Office. I asked him if evidence for climate change had become confused with belief in climate change. When it's a scientific issue, it shouldn't be about belief. It should be about evidence. And the evidence on climate change is, of course, that the world is getting warmer and it probably is due to increased greenhouse gas concentrations due to human activities. To really understand the evidence properly yourself, you have to look into it quite deeply. If you're not doing that, then you have to be accepting what other people are telling you. And that's where the level of belief comes in, I expect. So is this a failure of scientists to communicate? I think scientists should take more responsibility in communicating uh, their work uh, to the wider world because often the communication can, not in all cases, but sometimes can be done by those with, with a vested interest in either a good story or in promoting a particular message. Uh, when it comes to actually making hard decisions about climate change, particularly in adapting to climate change, you want to know what are likely changes or plausible changes, which may not necessarily be the worst-case scenario. However, many people involved in the communication of climate change will naturally present the worst-case scenario because they are trying to promote a particular course of action. So an NGO trying to influence government will talk up the worst-case scenario. This may be still plausible, but may not be the most likely scenario. Whereas if you're trying to make a, a concrete decision on investing in, I don't know, building a new reservoir or something, you need to know what's likely rather than what's worst case. So has there been a a talking up of of climate change, talking up of these severe impacts that everything's going to hell? In some cases I I think there is, which is obviously counteracted by the uh, the other extreme that people denying there's any kind of climate change at all. I think on both sides that there can be intended or otherwise a, a misrepresentation of things. Sometimes I think in recent years there's there's perhaps been a bit of a tendency in some areas to try and blame everything on climate change. Any extreme uh, weather event, for example, sometimes gets blamed on climate change. Of course, extreme weather happens anyway. We're thinking that some of these events will happen more frequently or more intensely in the future, but you can't say that every single event is due to climate change. And then, of course, if you do do that, then you get an extreme event in the other direction, such as a cold winter. It then comes back to bite you. Richard Betts from the Met Office. In a moment, I'll be meeting a scientist who's analysing hard evidence on global warming. I'll also be getting dressed up in a very fetching hat and coat. First, though, with some of the other news on the Planet Earth online website, here's Tamara Jones with a grisly tale, first of all, from Dorset. It certainly is grisly, Richard. And scientists from the Natural Environment Research Council's Isotope Geosciences Laboratory have discovered that a pit full of decapitated bodies in Dorset were those of Vikings. Workers discovered skeletons last summer whilst making way for a new road. And because the site is next to Europe's oldest Iron Age hill fort, called Maiden Castle, archaeologists thought that they must have been Iron Age. But carbon dating suggested the bodies dated back to the time of the Viking invasions. After analysing teeth from the bodies, the researchers discovered that the victims grew up in a much colder climate than that of Britain's. One of the victims came from as far north as the Arctic Circle, suggesting they could only have been Vikings. There's also a story on the site about mating in bees. Scientists have discovered that when it comes to competitive high-speed mating swarms, normal-sized male honeybees are much more successful than their smaller peers. Male honeybees' only goal is to mate with the queen during frenzied swarming. Once they've mated, they die, opening the way for other males to mate with her. 
But around one in ten male honeybees is small, so University of Leeds researchers wanted to find out if these small bees were more or less successful at mating. Only the queen is supposed to lay eggs, but some female workers stray from the party line and lay eggs in worker cells, and it's these eggs that develop into smaller males. Now it seems that the workers don't really benefit from doing this because their small sons don't do well when it comes to mating. And too much begging leads canary chicks nowhere. It certainly does. Well, scientists have found that canary chicks have a lot to lose if they beg too much for food. This is because their mother's patience has limits, and she can only give her chicks as much food as the environment allows. And chicks that waste energy begging too much just grow weaker, and they're they're just less likely to survive. Mothers actually give their unhatched chicks signals about how much food to expect from the world when they when they enter it. They lace those eggs with chemicals. So investing too much energy in begging really is an expensive mistake for the young chicks. Well, thank you. More on those stories on the Planet Earth online website. And Tamara just mentioned some research from the Isotope Geosciences Laboratory near Nottingham. And that's where we're off to now. We've now walked into the clean laboratory suite of our facility. And in this whole area, we have positive pressure, filtered air that's very clean that comes in from the outside world and is ultra-filtered so there's really no dust particles. Because dust means contamination, so we try to avoid that. There's a good reason why everything's kept so clean. Behind the double doors are three mass spectrometers. These precision instruments are measuring the ratios of isotopes in a sample. Isotopes are different forms of the same element, with the same atomic number but a different atomic mass. Head of the lab, Randy Parrish, uses the mass spectrometers as time machines to investigate the Earth's past climate. But before you're allowed in, you need to put on overalls, coat and overshoes. So let's get the coat on first. Put on the bench, overshoe on, down the floor. The laboratory generally is pretty idiot-proof. It's designed to be robust. Um, Sorry, I'm not calling you an idiot. The mass spectrometers sit on benches and consist of a set of metal tubes, like shiny drain pipes, leading to white metal boxes around the size of a microwave oven. Randy explained how the technique is used. Nature tends to prefer certain isotopes over other isotopes in natural processes. Take, for example, evaporation. You can take water evaporating from the sea. The oxygen that makes up water, H2O, contains three isotopes, isotope 16 mass, 17 and 18. It's easier to evaporate water if it's made up of the 16 than it is the 18. Really? So even though there are three different variations, only one is more likely to evaporate? Well, they're, they're all going to evaporate, but nature prefers to evaporate one over the other. So you will have a change in isotopic composition between the seawater and the moisture that's in the air as a result of the evaporation. So it will enrich the seawater in the heavy oxygen and it will enrich the atmosphere in the light oxygen. So 17 and 18 predominantly in the water and more 16 in the atmosphere. That's right. That's the general idea. Good, I'm following so so far. Okay. So if that packet of moisture arises in the equatorial regions and then moves northwards and then falls as rain or snow in northern latitudes, it will be enriched in the lighter isotopes. And so you can use this variation to study processes, turn it around to study, to infer how much evaporation is taking place in a lake, for example. 
there are many other ways you can do this. For example, during periods of glaciation, you are going to store a lot more of the light oxygen in the Antarctic ice cap. So when we have periods of glaciation, we see the oxygen isotope composition of fossils that grow in seawater change because of all that light oxygen that's basically tied up in the, in the ice sheets. That's incredible. So you can tell all this just by analyzing a particular sample, a particular chunk of ice. So we're building up a story. If we go and take a core of the ocean anywhere on Earth and look at the sediments, what we'll find is small fossils made of calcium carbonate mainly. So we can take those fossils in the layers of the ocean floor and we can measure their isotope compositions and we can actually reconstruct by essentially making a chart of wiggles. The wiggles tell us when you go from, say, glaciations into interglacials, back into glacials, interglacials, and so forth. So you can build up a past record of the Earth's climate by analyzing fossils. Yes. In old parlance, it's like a tape recorder. The sediments in the ocean record aspects of Earth's climate as they accumulate on the ocean floor. That's all very interesting, but how can you apply that to the future? Studying aspects of the past climate is very important because when you see major changes... And this could be due to natural past rises in CO2 that were very dramatic or drops in CO2, one or the other. You need to know how fast it took place and when it took place. If we know that, then we can feed those kinds of rates of change of climate or CO2 or whatever the parameter is into climate models. So climate computer simulations. Computer simulations, global climate models which are the basis of predicting all future climate. So we have to make sure if we're going to base all of our you know, economic policies, political policies, all sorts of things on these projections that are based on global climate models, we need to believe in the models. We need to know that they are reliable and can you know, accurately predict things in the future. And the fact is that all models are imperfect. They're only as good as the data that goes into them and some of the data that we know must underpin these models comes from the geological record of rapid climate changes that isotopes help us unravel. Head of the Isotope Geosciences Laboratory, Randy Parrish. The Planet Earth podcast is produced for the Natural Environment Research Council and in our next edition I'll be reporting from inside Britain's biggest donut. I'm overwhelmed by their ingenuity, their enthusiasm and the just astonishing range of different science that they do. Do join me next time. I'm Richard Hollingham from Wallingford in Oxfordshire. Thanks for listening.